Welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. I got an email a month ago from Christy Anspa, a Moderate Party listener in Wyoming, and she asked some really great questions about how and why the issues tend to fall the way they do along party lines. Why are Republicans the party of guns? Why are Democrats the pro-choice party? Why isn't there more crossover? How did we get here? And I couldn't stop thinking about it. The results of those questions and the thoughts that follow is a series that we're doing called A Tale of Two Parties. In this series, we're going to examine the history of our political parties and the psychology behind our ideology. Today's episode is part one, origin story. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Let's get started. Our story begins in 1824 with Andrew Jackson. You may know him from his portrait on the $20 bill or as that asshole behind the forced relocation of Native Americans and the Trail of Tears. But if you were alive in his heyday, you probably knew him as a war hero. He was a POW in the Revolutionary War and a hero in the War of 1812. People literally refer to him as the hero, the way that Madonna doesn't need a last name. You know what I mean? You would probably also know him as a guy's guy, a working man, a man of the people. And that's significant because he is unique among presidents at this point in time, because he grew up poor. His parents were Irish immigrants. He was self-taught and not like, I watched a YouTube video and now I'm good at crafts self-taught. Like he taught himself to become a lawyer and a pretty successful one at that. But unfortunately he uses his newfound wealth to buy slaves. He basically bankrolls his entire rags to riches story on the backs of slavery. As a cherry on top, he was also violent and hot-headed and thought to have fought in up to a hundred duels. Also, for what it's worth, he looks like a parakeet. And if you don't believe me, just check the show notes where I've posted some very persuasive evidence. So at this point, our old pal Andy is running for president against John Quincy Adams in what would turn out to be a pretty consequential presidential election that has an all-too-familiar villain, the Electoral College. Andrew Jackson is popular like really popular. So obviously this very popular guy wins the popular vote, pretty straightforward, except the electoral college results come back inconclusive. And for those of you who aren't reading the constitution every night before bed like a nerd, if the election results are inconclusive, the decision on the president goes to the House of Representatives. And that really sucks for Jackson because Congress doesn't exactly love him. They think he's a bit of a brute, like unsophisticated, doesn't really have the temperament to be president. And the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, he is definitely not a fan. Now, theoretically, the process that unfolds at the House of Representatives shouldn't be impacted by who the Speaker is or who the Speaker likes. But here on Earth, it definitely was. At least that's what Jackson thought. And it definitely seems that way if you consider that right after Henry Clay whips the vote and delivers the election to John Quincy Adams, Adams names him Secretary of State. I'm not saying it's a bribe, but I'm not saying that Henry Clay's working for free. Jackson is pissed, like pissed. He starts referring to this whole thing as the corrupt bargain. And he's so mad that he and his supporters actually form a political party with one goal in mind, to undermine Adams and ensure that he serves only one term as president. And it worked. Adams' presidency went poorly and his personality definitely didn't help. This guy sucks. 
He's like that really pretentious philosophy major that you don't want to get stuck at a table with because he will never shut up. Yeah, that guy. He's perceived as an intellectual elite who ignored the needs of the populace. And in his first annual message to Congress, Adams was interpreted as being against representative democracy, which is a choice. He states that we are palsied by the will of our constituents. So Jackson responds to this by championing the rights of ordinary citizens and declaring that the voice of the people must be heard. He champions the right to vote for all, at least all white men, which at the time is actually more democratic than most other countries, so that's a pretty big deal. And that party that he founded in opposition to John Quincy Adams, it's the Democratic Party. Quick fun fact here, actually, uh, the Democratic Party starts being associated with donkeys because at the time, political elites thought that Jackson was a jackass. So the party embraced the label and now hundreds of years later, Democrats think that that's the perfect mascot and it can't be improved upon at all. Side note, I'm not actually sure I know what a donkey sounds like because I looked it up to insert a funny little hee-haw sound effect and all I found was this. Like, what the fuck is that? I think that if I wasn't staring at this video of a donkey, I'm not sure I would know that that was even an animal. Yikes. Back to the Democratic Party. When it's formed, it's the party of the common man. Which makes sense, because Jackson is our first working man's president. That's a theme the Democrats still hold on to today. One thing that's a little different is that Democrats are really suspicious of central government at this time. They think it's the enemy of individual liberty. And a lot of that, in fairness, is fueled by the corrupt bargain. They think that the presidency was bought and paid for by Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. And while that might sound like a position that's held by modern Republicans, keep in mind that the Democratic Party still hated economic monopolies and didn't trust the rich. One of the reasons that they actually don't want big government at this time is that they believe that government intervention in the economy actually benefits special interest groups and creates corporate monopolies that only help the rich. So that's still very on brand for them. But anyway, the Democrats and Andrew Jackson spend the four years of John Quincy Adams' presidency just like dunking on this guy, blocking every shot. But Jackson still can't really let it go. He's just waiting for opportunities to get back at John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay on like a personal level. And during John Quincy Adams' re-election campaign, he gets that chance. He runs against him and just absolutely crushes him. Meaning that Henry Clay is the only name left in Andrew Jackson's burn book. And they have this book, this burn book, where they write mean things about all the girls in our grade. What does it say about me? You're not in it. Those bitches. Okay, so let's talk about Henry Clay for a second. Henry Clay's the real deal. Historians generally regard him as one of the most influential men of this era, and one of the most influential men in any era never to serve as the president. He's an incredibly successful politician. He's the best attorney of his generation, arguing before the Supreme Court many, many times. He serves as a senator, the Speaker of the House, the Secretary of State, and he receives electoral votes for president in three different elections. Abraham Lincoln describes Henry Clay as the definition of a great man and a great statesman. And if we can't take Abe's word for it, what are we even doing? He earns the nickname of the Great Compromiser because he brokers these deals that literally push back civil war. Not forever, but for a while. He also develops a grand strategic vision called the American System, which is a federal government initiative to foster national growth through protective tariffs and the Bank of the United States. Clay was all in on internal improvements, making the country better. 
growing. Jackson basically thinks that improvement is unconstitutional. So their feud really heats up over the National Bank. And just to give you an idea of the level of pettiness that we're dealing with here, some historians argue that Jackson actually supported the National Bank, but upon finding out that his nemesis Henry Clay supported it, he quickly changed his mind and stripped the bank of funds without getting Congress's consent, which was pretty unprecedented at the time. For Jackson, opposing the bank makes sense. Even back then, Democrats are very skeptical of Wall Street types, so this works for Jackson, at least with the people but it does not work for him with Congress. He spends most of his time in office actually fighting with Congress. You don't like me, don't even waste my time because I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to win. Good God, Brooke. His vice president, John C. Calhoun, who, for the record, is the craziest looking man I have ever seen, gets so fed up that he actually resigns and he goes back to the Senate to join the opposition against Jackson. <laughs> The feud between Jackson and Calhoun was really spicy, but the long-simmering rivalry between Jackson and Clay comes to a head when Clay ran against Jackson for the presidency. Henry Clay starts out confident. Andrew Jackson's veto of the bank bill was unpopular. Being opposed to improvements was also unpopular. And Clay thought that Jackson would lose votes over his unbelievably cruel Indian Removal Act. Not to mention that Clay had a record of civil service and was a larger-than-life statesman at the time. His argument to the American people was basically this. But that's not what happened. Clay seriously underestimates how racist the Democratic Party of the 1830s was. The Indian Removal Act actually helped Jackson in a lot of states. He also underestimated how powerful the Democratic Party establishment had become since their inception. Andrew Jackson wins in a landslide. There's no denying that Henry Clay was arguably more qualified and better suited to the office of the presidency. But Jackson was famous. And all the qualifications in the world don't win a popularity contest. But Clay wasn't done fighting just yet. He forms the Whig Party in opposition to Jackson, and in doing so, creates a two-party system that we know today. The Whigs are critical of Manifest Destiny, territorial expansion, the Mexican-American War. It dislikes strong presidential power as exhibited by Jackson, and then after that, Polk. And they prefer congressional dominance in lawmaking, as opposed to presidential dominance, which makes sense since they hold power in Congress and they don't hold the presidency. The Whig Party advocates for modernization, meritocracy, and the rule of law. Sound familiar? It should, because the Whig Party lays the intellectual foundation for the future Republican Party. But that doesn't happen until later. So we're headed into the 1850s, and slavery has become the defining issue of the day. Tensions between the free states and the slave states are at an all-time high, and the nation starts to feel like a powder keg. The United States is going through this period of rapid expansion, which is amplifying the tensions over slavery because every time a state is added, we have to fight about whether or not it should be a slave state or a free state. And since nobody wants to give on that issue, we're not able to make any sort of lasting compromise. Congress is deciding about each state individually, and they just keep kicking the can down the road. And cans aren't all they're kicking, ladies and gentlemen. This period of US history is getting increasingly violent. Here's Eric Foner, a professor of history at Columbia University. 
The issue of slavery became more and more volatile and violent in the 1850s. You had, long before the war broke out, violence was working its way into American politics. Bleeding Kansas, which was a civil war out there, you had violent rescues of fugitive slaves. People arrested as fugitives and then a mob would rescue them in the north and send them off to Canada. And you had this assault on the floor of the Senate, unprecedented, where Congressman Preston Brooks of South Carolina uh, basically snuck up behind, uh, it wasn't a very honorable thing to do, uh, snuck up behind Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, and started beating him over the head with his cane. Eventually this was stopped, but this showed you how even on the floor of Congress, the uh, North-South division was becoming, you know, uh, difficult to control, to say the least. In 1849, California petitions to join the Union as a free state, which is very on brand for California, by the way. But this move threatens to upset the delicate power balance between free and slaveholding states. Henry Clay, still out here wheeling and dealing, brokers the Compromise of 1850, which is a series of five bills that welcome California as a free state, but also strengthen the Fugitive Slave Act. And that's problematic because it legally requires northern states to prosecute and return runaway slaves, which they obviously do not want to do. But it holds things down for a while, at least until 1854. Things pop off again with the passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which authorized new territories and states to decide for themselves if they want to allow slavery, which goes against what both parties had agreed to previously. The North feels really betrayed and the South feels righteous. And at this point, the Democratic Party is defined almost exclusively by being pro-slavery. But the Whigs are a bit more complicated. The issue of slavery causes a deep division between the Northern and Southern Whigs. Northern Whigs oppose slavery, but the Southern Whigs actually want to expand it into Mexico and Cuba, which is just like, whoa. This split causes the Whig party to collapse at an astonishing speed. And it leaves us with one major party that is decidedly pro-slavery and viewed as extreme by at least half of the country. And the other major party just split itself in half. And in the midst of all of this chaos, a third party is born. And that third party is the Republican Party, a party defined by its opposition to slavery. The first candidate that they run gets wiped out of the presidential election, but their second candidate is Abraham Lincoln. So to all my third party stands out there, if you can dream it, you can be it. Here's Eric Foner again. So too, the Republican Party comes into its own. When Lincoln is elected, the Republican Party had only existed for five or six years. It was a conglomeration of state parties uh, and different factions, radical, conservative, ex-Democrat, ex-Whig, etc. Now it becomes a national party. It becomes a central element in mobilizing support for the war, mobilizing support for the government. Um, the strength of the Republican Party in the North counteracts the sort of centrifugal force of state loyalties and um, opposition to the war. So Lincoln is inaugurated and he confronts a country more divided than it has ever been. He's in office for less than a year before the Civil War breaks out. And I know that there's a lot of debate about whether or not the Civil War is fought over slavery or states' rights. And I just want to say that that is a stupid debate. The answer is both. Yes, the South is fighting in defense of states' rights, but the right that they're fighting to defend is the right to own another person. So, I mean, <sighs> anyway, the Civil War unfolds and the Confederate forces are defeated. The Union's victorious and the slaves are freed. And the Republican Party's attitude towards the South can best be explained to you by Jim Carrey doing an impression of Joe Biden. 
There are situations in life, and this is one of them, where there must be a winner and... Hey, So after the war, Republicans find themselves in a really interesting position. They've just defeated the South and saved the Union, and they're experiencing a period of political power and possibility. President Lincoln's Republican Party is the original party of big government. Lincoln's party was not for small, non-intrusive government, minimal taxation, traditional social norms, and white supremacy. It was a party of strong federal intervention and moral decisiveness, especially against the issues of slavery and Southern secession. Lincoln's administration gave us our first income tax, first national banking system, big bureaus like the Department of Agriculture, the Bureau of Pensions, an explosion of government contracting for the war, and federally funded higher education. This group of Republicans becomes known as the Radical Republicans. The Radical Republicans abolish slavery with the 13th Amendment, usher in universal citizenship with the 14th Amendment, and universal suffrage with the 15th Amendment. But soon, a shift starts to occur within the Republican Party. When you create a party in opposition to something, what do you do when you win? You're basically the dog that caught the car. Who are you without the thing that you're fighting against? There are two competing answers to that question within the Republican Party. The reformers and the money men. Reformers are the radical Republicans. Former abolitionists now focused on black rights and suffrage. The money men represent the Republicans' push towards being a party of big business. They become less interested in civil rights and more interested in economic expansion and capitalism. The Republican Party becomes one of the most powerful institutions in the nation. The Civil War makes it that. More a, a new generation, the people who are running the Republican Party in 1877 are not the same people, by and large, who were creating it in the 1850s. They are a new generation who grew up in the party, whose number one loyalty is to the party, and not to any particular ideology, other than the ideology of the union and the nation, which is not what's on the agenda in 1870s. So, you know, I just think it goes through a transition, a new group, and it, 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 it's the party itself that is now the determining factor. People are loyal to the party. Uh, yes, the party is still the party of Lincoln, it says. It's still the party of the nation, still the party of winning the Civil War. And yet that doesn't tell you anything about what its position should be on the issues of the 18, late 1870s and 1880s. Rapid industrialization brought major changes to America's economy and consequently to American society. Between 1889 and 1899, the population of the United States nearly tripled. Railroads extended the Pacific Ocean. The invention of the telephone in 1878 improved communication. In 1890, for the first time in American history, industrial workers outnumbered farmers. We're also seeing an increase in immigration from Southern Europe just as the American frontier was declared closed. Meaning people are starting to worry it might be getting a little crowded. And a lot of people start to get really anxious at the speed in which society is changing. Things seem to be moving too fast, and it leads to dislocation, unrest, and anxiety. Which brings us to the election of 1896. One of the most critical elections in U.S. history, but also one that people don't really pay much attention to outside of academic circles. This election sees the Populist Party and the Democratic Party come together and support William Jennings Bryan for president. Think of him like an old-timey version of Beto O'Rourke. 
He's young, charismatic, and pissed off at Republicans. Brian makes several explosive speeches lashing out against big business. At the Democratic National Convention, he gives a speech called the Cross of Gold. And it's one of the most famous speeches in history because the first time that he gives it, he throws the crowd into a literal frenzy. A reporter described the response as coming like a great burst of artillery, with men and women screaming and waving their hats and canes. He even writes, horrified, about how they took off their coats and flung them into the air. Here's William Jennings Bryan. They dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standards, the good thing. We will fight them to the uttermost, having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere. We will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Okay, so that admittedly sounds a bit underwhelming, but consider that he gives that speech in 1896, when he's 36 years old. But we obviously didn't have recording equipment back then, so this recording is William Jennings Bryan, but he's reciting the same speech 25 years later and not in front of a live audience. So I'm not sure that he's nailing the tone exactly right, but just imagine the same words, but delivered like this. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Heck yes, this guy is bringing the thunder, okay? So he's running against a profoundly boring Republican named William McKinley. I mean, ugh. I don't really have anything negative to say about William McKinley, but even that, I think, goes to show how boring he is. Like, there's not even anything bad to say about him. He's just fine. So it totally seems like Brian and the Democrats are going to win this, right? Wrong. Because McKinley has a secret weapon. And his name is Mark Hanna. Mark Hanna is like the OG campaign manager. There's no President McKinley without Mark Hanna. He completely redefines what a presidential campaign can look like. He knows his candidate's a bit of a dud, he's met the guy, but who cares? Hannah raises $4 million for the campaign, which is absolutely like unheard of at the time. And he gets most of that money from big business, because at this time there's no limit on campaign finance contributions. So he just completely outspends the Bryan campaign. McKinley doesn't even have to leave his house. Hannah literally transports 750,000 delegates to McKinley's house to hear him speak. Brian tries to overcome this financial disadvantage by campaigning across the country in a manner that no one had really seen done at the time. He travels to 27 out of the 45 states and logs 18,000 miles, which is a lot of miles if you consider that we're on like what, like steam engines at the time? Like you're not, those are 18,000 slow miles. <laughs> but he manages to give an approximate 600 speeches, reaching 5 million people. But it still doesn't work. Brian lost to McKinley by a margin of approximately 600,000 votes. McKinley brought home two-thirds of the electoral votes, making it the largest electoral sweep in 25 years. So at this point, it might not be clear why this election is important, right? Which is honestly probably why people tend to ignore it. 
It's not significant because William McKinley goes on to be this incredible president. Obviously, the guy's boring. It's significant because it marks several turning points in American politics. The first is the collapse of rural power. If you set aside the issue of slavery, elections in the 1800s were largely seen as a referendum on whether the country should be governed by agrarian interests, which is a fancy way of saying the interests of rural farmers, or industrial interests, like Wall Street. It's basically a battle between the past and the future, because up to this point, the U.S. economy was primarily an agriculture economy. But as we approach the end of the 19th century, we definitely shift towards industry, because it's also a period of technological innovation. And the results of the election of 1896 highlight the regional divide, with the industrial east and midwest for McKinley, and the agricultural south and far west for Bryan. As I mentioned earlier, this election gives birth to the modern presidential campaign, the type of campaign that we would recognize today. But the election of 1896 is most significant because of the massive realignment that happens between the two political parties. Up to this point, the Democrats have been the party of small government. During an economic downturn, Grover Cleveland, the previous Democratic president, famously told people that the people should support the government, but the government shouldn't support the people. Which is like a pretty bold swing during an economic depression. But Bryan differs from Cleveland because he begins to steer the party towards big government and towards social justice, a shift that would influence Democratic ideology moving forward. It also starts moving Democrats toward being the party of labor and workers' rights. One of the things that strikes me most here is how much Bryan sounds like a candidate that could be on the Democratic ticket today. Not necessarily his issue positions were way past a gold or silver standard, but his character and his view of the world or the role of government. Here's William G. Thomas III, a history professor at the University of Nebraska, talking about what kind of man William Jennings Bryan was. Bryan was a champion of those who uh, needed help. Uh, he was a uh, man of great conviction, and uh, one of the things that he was trying to do that was most difficult was to take on the economic powerful class that had emerged in American, in American politics, in American economy, in a way that didn't look like class warfare. That was what was so hard for Brian to be able to do, to, uh, to not appear to be a demagogue, to do it sincerely, to speak to the people without uh, tearing down, but instead attempting to build up. Uh, and that, that was a very hard uh, uh, case to make. And uh, he did it beautifully, but it was a very difficult uh, attempt to try and reveal the inadequacies of American society at the time without uh, looking like someone who's just tearing down the American, uh, the American ideals. Even though he loses, he wins the hearts of many Democrats. He will continue to be influential within the Democratic Party and run for president up to three times. Got big Bernie Sanders vibes, guys. Speaking of Bernie Sanders, this also marks the first time that Republicans make a serious effort to paint Democrats as radical socialists, which also seems very modern. Bryan's candidacy corresponds with economic power moving away from the agricultural South towards the industrial North, leaving the South in a period of economic decline and poverty. As a result, the Democratic Party becomes almost hostile to industry or business development, leaving a big opening for the Republican Party. Because this election also cements the Republican Party as the party of big business, ending their era as champions of civil rights. This turn towards business makes sense if you're looking at a map. The northern states that opposed slavery became the birthplace of the Republican Party, and these are the same states that become the capital of industry and business. 
and this close association with business remains a hallmark of the Republican Party today. Here's Doris Kearns Goodwin, famous presidential historian and Ron Burgundy's former lover, look it up, weighing in on the period. The time at the turn of the 20th century is very similar to today in many ways. The Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy, much like the tech revolution and globalization have done today. You had people in the rural areas feeling left out of the cities. You had a gap between the rich and the poor for the first time. You had a lot of immigrants coming in from abroad. And you had people in the working class feeling that they were under siege. And it was almost a revolutionary feeling. During this period, corporate titans like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, they've amassed spectacular wealth. And as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And by 1880, the wealthiest 1% of American families own 51% of the country's real and personal property, while those at the bottom own only 1.2%, which is especially frustrating if you consider what it was like to be a worker during that period. Between 1881 and 1900, 35,000 workers a year lost their lives in accidents at work. Strikes were commonplace, and no fewer than 100,000 workers went on strike every year. In 1892, for example, 1,298 strikes involving 164,000 workers took place across the nation. Obviously, unions were on the rise. So business is getting bigger and bigger. And soon, many believe that it has become larger and more powerful than the U.S. government. There starts to be some serious pushback against big business and the hold that it has on the country. This pushback is the sunrise of the progressive era. Progressives advocated for greater government regulation of the economy in an attempt to rebalance the scales after an era of unchecked capitalism. Like when you think about that villain in the top hat with the monocle that's tying that woman to the train tracks, like this is the era of that guy. So progressives are pushing back against it, basically telling the monopoly man to go fuck himself. Now, I do want to be clear. When I say progressives, I wouldn't fault you for thinking of the Democratic Party, because today that is very much their lane. But at this point in time, Democrats have not taken up that mantle yet. In fact, progressive politics are actually created by the remnants of the radical Republicans. Here's Michael Walwright. The term progressive was not really used in, in any ideological sense. There were reformers, uh, they were sometimes referred to as half-breeds, as in half-Republican, uh, but there was no, there was no clear ideological uh, concept or label at that time. The parties were divided more by uh, region than by ideology. Many people don't realize that the ideological divisions that we have today uh, along party lines, were, it was not always that way. And in fact, at the turn of the 20th century, it looked as if it could go either way. Both parties, Democrats and Republicans, were divided between uh, what we now call conservatives uh, and uh, reformers that we now call progressives. Uh, and there was, a, there was an, a very strong insurgency and a very strong push to make the Republican Party the progressive party. Theodore Roosevelt was a reformer and in many ways was the hero of the progressive movement. His presidency lent the prestige of the White House to welfare legislation, government regulation, and the conservation movement. At the core of his administration was the desire to make society more fair and equitable, with economic possibilities for all Americans. He also changed the government's relationship with big business. Prior to his presidency, as we've talked about, the government had generally given the titans of industry a blank check to accomplish their goals. But Roosevelt believed that the government had the right and the responsibility to regulate big business so that its actions did not negatively affect the public. All of this makes Roosevelt incredibly popular. 
He serves two terms but decides he won't run for a third. Instead, he decides that his dear friend William Taft should be his successor. Taft is a sweet guy. Roosevelt frequently comments on how unbelievably likable he is. But he struggles in the shadow of Roosevelt's larger-than-life presidency. So Roosevelt leaves office and he takes this weird safari trip. And when he comes back, he's like, I'm gonna be chill, I'm not gonna judge Taft right away. But his friends keep coming to his house to talk shit about Taft. And it starts to rile him up. Roosevelt gets so riled up that he turns on Taft and decides that he needs to throw his hat in the ring and run for a third term to get the country back on track. So by 1912, the Republican Party is hopelessly split between Republican progressives and the supporters of President Taft, who, for the record, tend to be more conservative. Roosevelt came to the convention, having won a series of presidential primaries that put him ahead of Taft in the race for party delegates. But Taft does some shady shit, and his backers manage to exclude most of the Republican delegates by not recognizing their credentials, meaning they can't vote. And these tactics enrage Roosevelt, who then refuses to allow himself to be nominated. Like he withdraws, basically saying that Taft wins as soon as somebody casts just one ballot. Roosevelt and his supporters take all that rage and they channel it into a third party, the Bull Moose Party. Its tenets include political justice and economic opportunity. It sought a minimum wage for women, an eight-hour workday, a social security system, a national health service, a federal securities commission, and the direct election of U.S. senators. This platform also supported the initiative, referendum, and recall as means for the people to exert more control over their government. Roosevelt worried about the power of the minority, often politicians, over the majority and thought those changes would make government more accountable to its people. Roosevelt and Taft split the Republican vote, with progressive Republicans voting for Roosevelt and conservative Republicans voting for Taft. Ultimately, the only person that this helped was Democrat Woodrow Wilson, who goes on to win the presidency. The split in the party is profound, and it marks the end of the era of progressive Republicans and the dawn of the Republican Party's shift towards conservatism. So this week, we've covered the historic origins of both parties, the golden age of the Republican Party, and the end of the era of radical Republicans. Next week, we're going to talk through the rise of conservatism and liberalism within the parties, the rise of religion in U.S. politics, the impact of the world wars, and the issues that divide the parties today. I want to say a special thank you to the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. I wouldn't have been able to put this episode together without their hardworking staff and their brilliant faculty. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you have thoughts, comments, or ideas, please feel free to email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. This series wouldn't have been possible without feedback from listeners like you. As always, the best way to show your support for the show and help build the moderate movement is to like, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for me. Stay safe, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye.